It's time now for the Lamb Macrolane Legal Show. Each show, heard every other Thursday at 1230, will feature different lawyers and their guests from the law firm of Lamb Macrolane. Good afternoon. My name is Stephanie Calagridis, and I'm an estates and trust lawyer with Lamb Macrolane. Lamb Macrolane is a full-service regional law firm located in Westchester, Newtown Square, and Philadelphia. I'm excited to be here today. And while I'm an attorney, I must remind you that this show is for our listeners' general legal information only. It's not legal advice on any subject matter at all. With me today is my administrative assistant, Michelle. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Stephanie. Uh, You know, as an estate and trust attorney, I'm involved with clients' lifetime estate planning and trust administration. And then after their death, I assist their executors and beneficiaries to make sure the transfer of the decedent's assets, whether it's under their will or their trust or beneficiary designation, are handled property. When I work with my clients, I strive to help them understand their options, and together we develop a plan to address their individual needs. We want to make sure that someone has the legal authority to help manage their financial affairs during their lifetime and for the orderly transfer of assets after death. Doing this way, doing this, and still trying to minimize gift and death taxes. So, Michelle, it might surprise you, but do you know what I think is the most important state, the most important estate planning document is? The first one that a client should do, and the one that no client should be without? Obviously a will. Ah, wills are important. But, you know, that's not it. For me, it's a well-crafted financial general power of attorney. Wow. I thought it was going to be a will, but something fancy that I'd need. But <laughs> Now, just think about it. For the most part, your will or some, most of the trust, they just deal with the people that you leave behind. What's important about the power of attorney, it's something that is for you directly. It will, can affect you during your lifetime how you live, it can affect who controls your money, what your financial assets are, and how and when, when, how and when your money will be spent. Wow, I never really thought about that. But I can just do one of those on the internet, right, for free. I don't need a lawyer. Well, a power of attorney is a lot more than a form, Michelle. It's a very powerful legal document. You're giving tremendous authority to someone else. We call them your agent. There are quite a number of decisions that you have to make before signing your power of attorney, and they're very personal and individual to you. This is not a one-size-fits-all situation. For example, who will you name as your agent? That one's easy. My husband. Well, that might be the right answer for you, but it's not always the best choice. If all your accounts and your assets are in joint names with your husband, and you're each the beneficiary of the other one's retirement plans and life insurance, yeah, probably that's fine. But what if it's a second marriage? What if your children don't like your new spouse? What if your new spouse doesn't like your children? What if your spouse isn't good with finances? And what if your spouse could be easily influenced by one child or friend? What if you don't have a spouse? Hmm. Hmm. Let me tell you, so here's, here's one situation from, from my, uh, my practice. So m- one child is living with the parents. They're taking care of them. 
And mom has always favored this child, and they're really, really close. So the child mentions to mom how much she loves the home and how she always wants to live there. So mom thinks it's a good idea, and so she decides to make things easier. Mom should change and add her name to the deed. Well, um, this might not be what dad wants, but if mom's his agent, mom could do it, and he may never know. That's ripe for abuse, and I can see a problem coming down the road on that one. Or what about a second wife, and she used the power of attorney to put her name on as a joint owner of the husband's bank accounts. She basically cut out her stepchildren from the estate plan. These are things that are all over the court cases where people are able to abuse the power of attorney. And many of these things are because people don't really understand the full power that they're giving to their agent. Hmm. Um, while these might not be, might have not have been permitted transfer, even under the document, sometimes um, it's too far down the road and the money is gone. And there's no way to recoup the money from the agent. So you can see choosing the right agent is really important. Well, then should I pick two people to work together, like both my children? Well, sometimes that sounds like a really good idea um, to name two people. But what's happened is that a lot of the times the banks don't like having two people on as the agents. They don't want to have to monitor having two people sign the documents. Sometimes we can name children in order, like child A. And if child A doesn't want to act, then you could name child B. Um, but sometimes that doesn't that always work. Just recently, we had a situation where our, my clients, there were two people named as the agents, co-agents to work together, and they went to three banks before they could finally find a bank that would allow them to act together. Now, I'm not talking about one or the other at any time. To me, that is really disastrous, and I never do that for my clients. Always talk them out of that one. Um, the other time where we had the, the same situation on dealing with the banks, again, it's not that it's, it's illegal or improper to have it, but it's just a matter of how can you use your power of attorney. Um, the bank actually required the one agent to delegate all their authority to the other agent so that one person could sign the account. They wouldn't even do an either or. Needless to say, that doesn't always work well. Sometimes it does, and in that situation, it, it worked really well. But it's not all the time. So they had to sign over their, their what they could do. I mean, how much power does an agent actually have? Well, you know, right in the top of the your power of attorney, it states there that the agent can do anything that that the agent can do anything that the principal or that you could do if you were personally present. That's a lot of power. So some of the things that they can do, they can buy and sell stock. They can change your financial advisor, especially if they don't like the advice that they're getting. They can open and close your bank accounts. They can write checks. They can sell your house. They can mortgage your house. All these things without getting further permission from you. So while these powers that I just mentioned, and there are many more, don't have to be spelled out. They're implied in that grant 
that general grant of the power of attorney. Um, there are some, um, in my documents, I like to list them and talk about exactly what each of those things mean, such as to handle an investment account. We'll put in there specifically, you may buy stocks, you may sell stocks, you may buy options, all these things so that the agent knows what they can do and so the financial institution can point to the document and understand that what the agent is trying to do is a permitted doc, uh, permitted action. Wow, that's a, I mean, that's a lot. I mean, that sounds like if I don't choose the right person, they could abuse a lot. Well, there is a lot of room for abuse, Michelle. And, you know, that's why you hear all the horror stories about powers of attorney. And the courts are constantly monitoring these things. Um, but the the, the legislature has determined that certain types of power are so prone to abuse and are so powerful that they will not be read into that general grant of power of attorney. They must be specifically written into the document. For example, the power to make gifts. Unless the document is very specific that it grants a power to make gifts, the agent does, cannot make a gift. And if all they say is to make to make a gift, it means that they can only make up to what's called the annual exclusion amount, or that $15,000 per person per year. Now, with proper um, discussions with your attorney, you might want to expand that ability to make gifts. Um, you may want it for death tax planning or income tax planning, maybe even Medicaid planning. But unless these things are discussed and understood completely, you really shouldn't have them in your power of attorney. And again, unless it's written in, it's not there. Another one that a lot of my clients don't realize is it's the power to operate a business. So you may have, be a sole proprietor and have a business and no one will have authority to um, manage your business in the event you couldn't do it yourself. Um, you have to make sure that the power of attorney is coordinated, coordinated with any operating agreement that you might have. Um, but without that specific clause in the power of attorney, your agent would not be able to handle your business for you. And again, remember, we're usually we're talking about situations where the principal can no longer act. So, if, um, so the other thing is provide for personal and, at your option, family maintenance. This is a this is a big one. Think of a situation where the print the, the husband gives the power of attorney to his son. He has a second wife. Unless it's spelled out in the document that the agent is able to use the husband's money to take care of the, the wife over a very bare minimum that is required by law, then that son would not be able to do it. So it's really important that these things are written in the document and thought about. Um, Sometimes you're not going to want to provide for family maintenance. It's not an all or nothing type of a thing. What about if your spouse has another source of income and you don't want to have a trust fighting with the agent under the power of attorney to provide for their care? Maybe it's better that things are paid for elsewhere. Uh, what if the, the spouse is qualifying for their benefits? You don't want a creditor to be able to come in and try to attach your money to be able to give it out. These things are just so important that you just can't, again, just can't check a box on the internet to put it in your document. Powers of attorney um, 
Oh, so you also could put in there the power to change an estate plan. Now, I will admit, I almost never include that. That is so ripe for abuse. Uh, it would have to be a very, very specific reason that I put it. I fear sometimes that these documents may allow you to check boxes, and therefore you could be inadvertently giving someone a power to change who your beneficiaries are. And that also goes for changing beneficiary designations. That, again, is a way that people could abuse these powers and has to be written in there and after careful consideration. All right. So that sounds like a lot that can happen. When does it go into effect? Well, it depends on the document. There's two types of documents that we make. We have one that's effective immediately and the other one that's effective only upon the, the principal's disability. Like immediately, like I sign it in your office and when I walk out, it's in effect? That's correct. Most people really don't intend that to be used right away. There are situations, but for the most part, it's there waiting. So if they need to use it, and they really only want it to be used on their disability. But the problem is, is how do we determine if a person is disabled or not? A power of attorney can say that it's only effective on disability, but then you have to have a definition on what is disability. And who makes that determination that you're disabled? Um, for example, sometimes we put in here that the doc you have to have two doctors certify that you can no longer handle your finances. Well, you can imagine, unless you're in a coma, the doctor doesn't want to opine on that. No. No. Um, sometimes what if I don't have a doc, a regular doctor. Well, that's you have like, to have it. It's, it's a usually like the attending physician that has it, or two people that are familiar with your situation. But they can tell you whether you, you know, whether you have cancer or not. But they don't want to tell you whether or not you can handle your financial uh, information. Uh, what about the person early stages of dementia? They may understand. They may not. So there's too many questions. So sometimes we will have a trusted family member be able to pull the trigger. It's their determination that you can no longer handle your finances. Um, the other thing is you can certify it yourself. You write the document today, and even though it allows for maybe the doctors to certify it, if you realize you can't handle it anymore, don't want to handle it, handle it anymore, you can just say that I'm no longer competent to do these things and spring the power of attorney into effect. Can I unspring it? Well, that's a really good question, Michelle. Absolutely. Usually, usually what that does is we put in the document that, that you're able to, the same way that you are determined to be disabled, you can have it that you're no longer disabled. Think of a person who's temporarily uh, in a coma, maybe a medically induced coma. You might be able to have it spring, and then once you're better, you'd have it back. The other thing is that a power of attorney is revocable. So as long as you have the mental capacity to revoke the document, you can change that. That's good. Now, if I sign one, does my agent have any financial responsibility? Well, just because you name somebody doesn't mean that they have to act. Okay. But because before they act, the agent has to sign an acknowledgement saying that they understand that all of their actions have to be done in the principal's best interest. Um, 
until recently, though, we would routinely have the agents sign the doc. Yeah, the agents sign the document right when the document is signed initially. But there was this recent case that came out, and it comes out of bad facts and abuse. But the court said that because this one son knew that he was the power of attorney, had the power of attorney, was the agent, and he refused to act, the court found that he was liable for not acting. So this is a real change in our understanding of what the duty and responsibilities of an agent are. It used to be as when, whenever they acted, they must act in the principal's best interest. Now there's sort of maybe an implied duty to monitor it. This can be really problematic because a lot of times people don't know they've been named because you don't have to, again, until you act, you don't have to consent. Um, so the, the court found it. So now in our practice, as you know, if a spouse is named first and the spouse is at the meeting, we'll have them sign the power of attorney stating that they acknowledge that they're the agent. But if it's anyone other than the spouse, I no longer do that. Now, I know there are a lot of attorneys out there that have different practices, but this is just something that I think is safe for my client, another safety. So you seem to think that it's better to do the immediately effective one, not the springing. Well, not always. Okay. Um, if you decide to name your spouse and you're on joint bank accounts and you're sharing any, everything anyway, that they're the good thing, then it's probably fine to be immediately effective because in order for, like if you name an alternate, in order for them to um, act, um, they have to prove that your spouse can't act because they only come into play when the spouse is no longer willing or able to act. Um, so in that situation, I do like them immediately um, effective. However, sometimes it's good to have them wait and have to prove that incapacity. What if you're naming somebody, um, you're not 100% comfortable or don't, don't really want them to start acting unless, or even to know your business, unless you are disabled. In that situation, it may be worthwhile having somebody have to jump through some hoops, finding those doctors in order to certify you as disabled or convincing you that it's time for you to give up the power, at least temporarily, to your agent. So now, again, this is one of those things. It all depends who you are, who you're naming, and what the circumstances are. So once I sign it, do I need to get like a safe deposit box at a bank? Where uh, do I keep these? Well, a safe deposit at the bank is probably not a good location for them. Because how does a person get into your bank account, into your safe deposit box? Okay. The power of attorney that gives them the authority to get in there is inside the box. So that's, that's usually not an acceptable uh, location. Um, if you're incapacitated, if you want to get it, you obviously can. But if you're incapacitated, nobody could actually get in there. Um, but if you leave it in your nightstand, then anyone would have access to it. That may not be a good option either. So we offer for our clients, we offer to hold their original estate planning uh, documents in our safety file. And then when they need to act, we'll provide them with certified copies so that they can go to banks and handle their transactions. So if, if my agent needs to actually use my power of attorney, is it easy for them? Is this going to be something difficult that they have to do? So 
I've, I've come to the conclusion if they're trying to do something good, it'll take a while for them to get the power of attorney in place. If they're trying to do something nefarious, somehow they manage to get them acknowledged really quickly. But what do you need to, um, but when you need to act under a power of attorney, there are steps that you're going to have to take. Let's take, for example, if somebody wants to be put on as the power of attorney of another person's bank account, the agent would then take the power of attorney document or a certified copy of the power of attorney document to the bank. The bank will then take it and they will send it up to their legal department for review. The bank has the right to uh, request a, an acknowledgement or certification from the agent that this um, document is still in effect, that it has not been revoked. I mean, how would the bank know if the principal actually told you they were revoking the document and somehow you had a copy and you were trying to use it? So you have to certify that it's there. They also have the right to get a legal request, a legal opinion that the power of attorney is a valid document under the state law. So that can take a week. That can take some time. You can, if you have a valid power of attorney, you're going to work through the steps if you're able to use it. Um, the problem is that we need to um, protect the principal from abuse. And that's what these are in there. They're in there for safeguards, to safeguard for the clients. Um, the problem is with abuse. What if somebody, again, we talked about having an immediately effective power of attorney. If somebody got a hold of your power of attorney, they could go and they could empty out your bank account. They could go, they could change things on your deeds. They could do things. Right now, the principal has always has the right to question the actions of their power of attorney and demand an accounting. But once the, if the principal's still living and they have capacity, it's harder for a family member to question maybe another sibling about what their actions are. But there are safeguards in the law that if somebody is truly abusing their power of attorney, that we're able to re get it revoked and have them held accountable for their improper actions. That sounds like so much bad can happen. I mean, why would I want to do this? Well, I think you have to think about what's the alternative. So think about the situation where you're incapacitated. You have financial assets that need to be managed. You need someone to pay your bills, someone to pay for your care, someone to have access to your accounts in order to pay for your nursing care. Without a power of attorney, your option, your only option is to have a court-appointed guardian for you. That takes time, money, in order, and it has a tremendous amount of court oversight. So as part of a good estate plan, we need to think about having a power of attorney. Again, maybe in that, in some situations, that springing power, the one that's only going to be effective upon disability, because in that situation, it would prevent or reduce the need for a guardian of your finances. All right, and that's beginning to make a lot more sense, and this sounds really important. This is a lot more complex than it looks on the Internet. <laughs> well, you're right, Michelle. And, you know, the other thing you have to remember is that um, powers of attorney are state-specific. Each state has different rules on what must be in the power of attorney, what words within the power, what each word means within the power of attorney. For example, that power to make gifts means one thing in Pennsylvania. It can be something totally different in New Jersey. So again, where are you signing it? What law applies to your documents? 
are all really important factors that we have to take into consideration when we do um, our documents. Um, you know, one of one of my roles for my clients is to go through these things. Some people don't; they're they're like you. They don't <laughs> they don't understand why we have to. You know, just just give me your usual. You know, but there really is no usual. There is no normal. Um, every each client needs to think about what it is that they need, what meets their situation, their family life, their financial situation. And you know what? You can have more than one power of attorney. You may have a general power of attorney, but you may also have a very specific one. Sometimes we'll use powers of attorney for um, somebody who can't make it to a settlement for the sale of their house. And that would be a specific power of attorney where they are able to do one specific tax. To sign the documents necessary, including the deed, in order for me to sell my house to Michelle for X dollars on such and such a date or before such and such a date. Very specific power of attorney. Um, you may name somebody and give them the power of attorney over your business apps assets, but not over your personal finance assets. So all these things have to come into play when you're considering whether or not you want to do a power of attorney and who you're naming and what powers you're going to grant or exempt from their actions. Now, something that I think we need to talk about is the difference between a power of attorney and a healthcare directive living will. Because sometimes they also call those as healthcare powers of attorney. So it can get kind of confusing. What I've been talking about here today are the financial side for a person. There's also powers of attorney or directives or healthcare directives that deal with your medical decisions, where you live, what kind of care you're going to be given. And that's a whole separate document. Wow. And sometimes in my practice, I like to do the healthcare directive and living will in one standalone document. Because just think about it. The person that you might want to have handle your finances might be totally different from the person that you'd want to have handling your medical, direct, your medical decisions. And we have to make sure that those two documents or those two people coordinate. Many times under that family care, your personal and family maintenance, it says to coordinate and work with and support my agent under my health care power of attorney, because you don't want to have that one power of attorney, the health care saying this person needs to be placed in an assisted living facility and the financial person doesn't want to spend the money and they're saying no. So we also have to tie these two documents together. So while I always say that the power of attorney is the most important document, it's not the only document that my clients need to have. They need to be part of a coordinated estate plan, which usually includes wills, possibly revocable trusts, the general financial power of attorney, and a health care directive living will document. That's what I call sort of the basic estate planning. And that's something that I try to work with my clients, go through all the different steps in order to decide what's going to happen during their lifetime and after their death. So I think we can see from today's discussion, Michelle, is this a one-size-fits-all situation? No, I'm definitely not doing this on the Internet. I think that's a wise idea. You know, and for the attorneys, when, when our clients do have, or we, we have an agent come to us with a power of attorney that was prepared on the Internet, there's usually a lot of problems. And so it's, you know, penny-wise, pound-foolish. And that's what, you, what you, we try to provide. 
So um, I hope that you can see that these power of attorneys, again, take a lot more thought than most people think about. And with the, if the need arise, I hope that uh, my clients and our listeners will be will contact us uh, for for some advice. I just want to remind you, you know, Lamb Macerlain is a full service regional uh, law firm. We're located in Westchester, Newtown Square in Philadelphia. And this year we're celebrating our 50th year of excellence, serving Chester County and the region since 1951. I didn't live in Chester County in 1951, I can tell you that. But our, our attorneys are here to help you. 1971. So, 1971. What did I say? 51? I wasn't here 51 either. Uh, our attorneys are here, <laughs> here to help you. So please check out our website at landmacrolane.com or call our office at 610-430-8000. Thank you and have a wonderful afternoon. You've been listening to the Lamb Macerlane Legal Show, heard every other Thursday at 1230 on WCHE 1520, the talk of Chester County.